Read to him the 29th scroll, 6th verse. Beware the beast man, for he is the devil's pawn, alone among God's primates. He kills for sport, or lust, or greed. Yea, he will murder his brother to possess his brother's land. Let him not breed in great numbers, for he will make a desert of his home and yours. Shun him, drive him back into his jungle lair, for he is the harbinger of death. Welcome to the Three Men in a Retrospective podcast, Planet of the Apes Retrospective Series. My friends, I have convened this extraordinary meeting of the council in order that I may report upon an action which I deemed necessary. Join Matt. You are a good and wise ape. Garrett. The human way is violence and death. And Adam. The only thing they fear more than me is you apes. As they travel through the spectrum of Earth and into the Forbidden Zone, and consequently dissect the most primitive of all film franchises. My God, did we finally do it. From the Charlton Heston starring 1968 original, Take your stinking paws off me, you damn dirty ape! To director Tim Burton's 2001 remake. We've been searching for you for so long. All the way through the latest entry, 2024's Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. I don't believe it. The man will see, the man will do, their opinions of how good or inferior each movie in the series truly is. He has a definite gift for mimicry. All coming up, courtesy of percolated media. All of human history has led to this moment. Beneath the Planet of the Apes. Released on May 26, 1970, budget was $2.5 million, with a box office take of $19 million, and this was directed by Ted Post. All right, we're back for part two of Planet of the Apes, a sequel that was put into production pretty quickly, at a time where sequels were not exactly the most looked fondly upon trend in Hollywood. If anything, it was the opposite. It was looked at desperation or a lack of to move on for a lot of properties at the time. All right, pause. Boys, remember last week, very end of that podcast, I said, you know, I don't know when, but I know there's a time where this series goes off the fucking rails. This isn't a preview of my review. This isn't a preview of my final star rating. You did not tell me it was the very first sequel that happened we're about ready to discuss a crazy fucking movie right here folks if you guys haven't seen this i'm telling you right now pause this fucking podcast go and watch it first because holy shit goudreau what the hell did you get us into with well i had to have my own mute implant so i did not spill the beans about this movie whatsoever because part of the fun of this series as the person who's seen it in contrast to the two of you who have never seen any of these i really have to be coy about all of these movies so that you get the full experience but to answer your question yeah 
it's not what you would expect from a Planet of the Apes sequel, especially one that comes out roughly two years after the original. Correct. And you know what? Believe it or not, I had pretty high hopes for this because I am a pretty big fan of the director. The director is a guy, as you mentioned, Ted Post. Now, this guy is somebody who's directed a few movies in a series that Matt has put on the schedule a couple of times, but for some reason we haven't gotten to. Dirty Harry, he's done a couple of those. And he did a lot of the, as a connection to last week's film, he did a few Twilight Zone episodes as well. So this is a guy whose work I've respected over the years and I was really curious as to how this guy who has done some supernatural yet grounded things with Dirty Harry supernatural with Twilight Zone how he was going to handle a sequel to at that time one of the biggest successful movies of all time well speaking of people that brings us to how this movie came to be the person that I did not mention was Rod Serling who was an integral part of Planet of the Apes in the original he was consulted to come back for this one but the Fox producers, because of how much of a financial success the original was, they wanted to rush the script into production almost immediately, but Serling said, basically, I don't want to shit something out if my full time is not devoted to it. Because at this time, I think Night Gallery was still going, so he uh -huh. was committed to other projects. So he declined to come back completely. So his imprint is not on this movie whatsoever. So they said, all right, what do we go from here? They went to Pierre Buell, who was the author of the original book, and he wrote a draft for a sequel. It was called Planet of Men, where the story was you had a tailor who would lead an uprising of enslaved men to take back control of the apes, uh, to take control from the apes versus the general Ursus. So it's basically, if you, when I say that plot synopsis, it's kind of what the Tim Burton film did eventually. Yeah. But I mentioned Taylor, and that leads me to the star, Charlton Heston, who showed little to no interest in coming back. The star of the last film. Yes, the lead yeah. person of your previous movie said, I don't want to come back. But the studio head said, this character is a necessity, so we need him back at all costs. So they pulled a Sean Connery for James Bond around this time and backed a dump truck full of money up to his house and said, what do you want? He said, I'll come back if you kill me. He pulled he pulled a Sigourney <laughs> Weaver. <laughs> Harrison Ford. Harrison Ford, uh, yeah. Lee Curtis pulled this same Halloween. Mm -hmm. So he was the, the ancestor to people not wanting to come back to franchises. And for all intents and purposes, I understand his rationale. As I mentioned previously, sequels were kind of looked down upon at this time. And he was still a very credible star, although he was shifting into his sci-fi trilogy, as I mentioned. And the studio said, all right, not only are we going to call your bluff on killing you off, we're going to escalate that towards the climax of the movie, so you don't have to worry about you coming back, let alone a lot of other people. And to go back to the writing of this a little bit, boys, both of us have reviewed one of the screenwriter's previous work. He worked on Goldfinger. So, again, we have credible people working on, these mov on this movie. I wanted to know how they were going to follow last week's movie with quite a cast of people behind the scenes. And it's a proven commodity. It made money. And as you mentioned, Matt, sequels were not looked that high up on back in the 70s and 60s. So I, I, I really wanted to know what they were going to do with this. You mentioned the writer, Paul Den. Yeah, as you mentioned, he was the co-writer of Goldfinger with Richard Maybaum. He'll be the creative voice, the writer for the next three movies we talk about, so two through four are penned by him, and he was the one who developed this script where he was the one who came up with the implementation of dealing with the post-atomic age and nuclear fallout. But one of the things that he wanted to include in this movie that was ultimately left out was a half-human, half-ape child that fell through the wayside largely because the makeup tests were good, but the implication of bestiality was not looked upon 
with with fondness at the time. Yes. So they asked that completely. After I watched this, I did watch a little documentary on YouTube about that. And yeah, the screen tests, I'll disagree with you. The screen tests actually were not that good. It's a really weird looking child. And yeah, you're right. The idea of bestiality would not work. Interesting idea. Not really that thought out, though. Well, the next and the next generation of apes in this future is something we'll see later on down the road. So it's not like they removed that idea completely and never went back to it. Franklin Schaffner also did not come back because he was working on Patton around this time. So they got Ted Post, who you mentioned, and he said, I don't like this script because it doesn't have a point. So they asked him, OK, what do you not like? And he wrote a letter to the studio, which is more effort than a lot of directors put into movies nowadays. When it comes to their input, no he said, and I quote, the loss of a planet is the loss of all hope. So he rejected the nihilism that this movie is kind of infamous for and notorious for as well. So can I bring on another writer, he asked. They said, okay, so Michael Wilson was the co-writer of the original. They could not get him to fully come back because, as I mentioned, this movie was made for half the budget of the previous film. So they could not allocate that money to bring on an additional writer. So Post said, all right, I'll do it. They did re- rework some things. They rewrote the script for about a week, but it was not a complete overhaul. Speaking of overhaul, this is also the only film in the series, original, where Roddy McDowell is not in it whatsoever. He had a scheduling conflict, so Cornelius is played by another actor. And speaking of actors, Orson Welles was going to be in this movie. That Why is it that every fits. series we do... Yeah, no shit. Every old series we do... Orson Welles' name always comes up, and almost every single time, he's not in the fucking movie. He was going to play General Ursus, but he declined because he did not want to spend all the time in makeup, because it was a very extensive process. So that part was recast Mm -hmm. to somebody else. But, I mean, they got Charlton Heston back, they got Kim Hunter back, they got Linda Harrison Mm -hmm. back, so it's not like they had to recast everybody or, or do anything that extreme, but the movie came out, and it was not really well received in comparison to the original movie. In fact, some people called it hokey, substandard, nihilistic, as I mentioned. It's got a negative reception at the time. Gene Siskel gave it a mixed review, but he didn't outright condemn it. But in comparison to the first film, a lot of people view this as a big step down. And, you know, it's tough. When you make a movie that iconic, oftentimes the immediate follow-up is not the best. Yeah, yeah, I can see how that reception would be kind of negative towards this you know it, it goes in a very crazy yet i'll go ahead and call it ballsy direction and i could see people going to the movies in the 70s and realizing that you know they, they've waited three years for this or two years for this actually and it's over and they're like wow what did we just watch and that's the fight are you going to put out more of the same are you going to get a writer and director that want to do something it's a sequel but you know we want to do something different with the sequel and you got an audience who wants more of the same i think this movie starts to really show that fight between do you do more of the same do you go in a radically different direction can you go in a different direction to make it work yada yada like this is kind of the pinnacle of, of showing that yeah i mean this movie is kind of like the ultimate tug of war or yeah. Now, Matt, you mentioned that they brought the original writer back for this, or they tried to anyway. Was it his idea to bring in the nuclear aspect of this, or that was another That's writer from brought in? Paul Den. 
Oh, that's from his drafts. Okay. All right. I was wondering because, you know, we we mentioned last week, me and Adam, two people who have watched it for the very first time, came out of it really enjoying it. And I did like that that was a ballsy movie for that time too. We're tackling the subject of civil rights and whatnot. And I really respected how they handled that. So I can see how you can take another huge topic of the day and bring it to the forefront in a popular series like this. How successful they are as compared to last week, we'll talk about. Well, speaking of direction, let's get into the the movie in and of itself. And the movie starts out with a quick recap of how the previous film ended. Picks up where they have left the cave that has all the human artifacts. Cornelius is reading the scripture about how man is, you know, the ultimate destroyer. They recap how Zaius lets Taylor and Nova go, but he's not going to like what they find. So it's kind of the previously on Planet of the Apes type of opening. Yeah, and gentlemen, we're going to run into this a lot when we eventually get to Rocky, which I know Matt has on the schedule in the next couple years. But yeah, that's what I thought of when I watched this, were, were those Rocky movies where videotapes were not readily available. So you kind of have to remind the audience of what they're coming to and where they came from. And this is something that these older movies that have sequels that they weren't prepared for have to do. I like the way they do this. You know, they're, they're reminding us, you know, I mean, as people who own streaming services and DVDs and Blu-rays and whatnot, it can be kind of laborious to say, okay, we've already seen this. For people who are going to the theater in 1970, you know, two years after that original come out, not seeing it since, I like the way they uh, incorporate that ending into the beginning of this film. We have to look at it from the perspective of back at that time, there was no home video, there was no television was in its infancy. So if, if you saw the original movie, your only recollection is in all likelihood that initial viewing. It's a good recap. It's also only a couple minutes. Not like they go through the entire last movie. They just give you the last five minutes. Yeah. It, for a sequel, it picks up directly after the first one. So you can't say that it's one of these sequels that does a big time jump. Well, technically it's a time jump if you know the, <laughs> the, sci- the science, quote unquote, of this movie. Mm-hmm. But once Taylor discovers the remnants of the Statue of Liberty, they just continue on their journey to look for some kind of civilization. And they run into, well... Mostly the desert, until they come across some pretty shoddy lightning effects, fire wow. shooting up from the ground, there's earthquakes, so it seems like the, the planet is rebelling against human presence at this point, now that they're in their forbidden zone. Mm, bad effects. You can tell that the budget was slashed in scenes like this. I understand what they're going for, I understand what they were working with back in 1970, but this looks pretty bad. Bad even for 1970, that's a thing, or 69 when this would have been getting done. I mean, Star Trek, the original series, called them up and said, hey guys, would you like some effects work? I mean, this is pretty, <laughs> pretty jotty. They should have called them for copyright and said, hey, you stole our bald mutants. Oh, jeez, we'll get there. Taylor is investigating the wall, and we cut, and he has just vanished. So Nova's left all by her lonesome, and I'm saying, oh, God, do we have to follow a mute character for the rest of this movie? (laughs) (laughs) Looking at this one, wait a minute, what did I just miss? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. He through a wall, the wall disappeared. I have, remember, I have no idea any of the stuff that's going on through the rest of this, and I Mm -hmm. am. I'm as confused as Taylor is at the end of the first movie. I got no idea what the hell I'm seeing here. I mean, I guess if you were into it at this time and you were having a continuation, you know, I kind of admire that they're picking this movie up seconds after the events of the last one. But, yeah, I mean, it's, I literally thought, did they just find a way to get Charlton Heston out of this movie? Spoiler, yeah, they did. With the way it's edited, you would think there's like a shot missing. Of him falling yeah. through the, yeah. the cavern exactly or something. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's a quick jump. They don't even try to show him disintegrate, which, you know what? It would have looked worse than the fire effects in this movie if they would have tried that, you know? Although, like you said, they did have Star Trek, you know, beaming effects back in those days. So I don't know. I'll go ahead and say right now, you know, in the next 10 minutes, we're going to meet another character here, Brent, who's another survivor of another crash. I thought, boys, for the next 10 minutes that he's on screen, that that was Taylor. I thought that was Charlton Heston for a good... (laughs) at least eight to ten minutes before i realized that they went a different direction so i was already confused by this point i mean when you hear someone say i'll come back if you kill me off that leads you to believe that they're only in the opening and that's it yeah so if you don't know it it is kind of a surprise when he shows up later on at least Mm -hmm. i felt but speaking of people who just show up there's a second spaceship that lands in the forbidden zone and we're introduced to brent and skipper for all of five minutes before he dies yes Brent is played by James Franciscus, who was a very big TV actor at the time, with things like Mr. Novak, Doc Elliott is something he was known for. And as far as casting someone who's that square-jawed everyman like Charlton Heston, you certainly got the look down. And while you could argue that Heston's acting fluctuated between hokey and authentic, this guy is a blank slate and kind of hurts the movie. He's real bad. And, you know, like I said, I, I thought it was Hested at first, and then I felt bad about thinking that when I realized that it wasn't. This this guy, he looks like him in a lot of ways in, in 1969 or 70 or whatever. He has a body that could rival Charlton Heston's from back then. He's real chiseled, but his acting and his line deliveries are pretty bad, and you miss Heston pretty quick when you realize it's that's not who this is. Well, you're not the only one who thought it was Charlton Heston, because I thought we went back in time and we saw a different version of this crashing or something like that even the way they do his beard he's got the same bright eyes that heston does he's got that blue eyed stare and it's i think it was completely deliberate i'm just i'm like wait why are we burying somebody i thought this is something we just didn't see from the first one that they were using to fill us in and yeah it was a little bit until he announces himself as with a different name and that he knows who taylor is that i'm like oh okay there's a second ship because that's not lazy (laughs) <laughs> it's also not explained how they got those coordinates and all the yes. how they were able to pinpoint yeah. exactly where they were, but they deduce that he's <laughs> he's in the year three nine five five. Much like Taylor, he assumes that they're on another planet, not necessarily Earth. So we bury Skipper. I don't know where he got all that dirt from because they landed in. <laughs> I'll give him credit. That right. it's, I know it's a military mission because that is a military foldable spade. So I'll give him one point for being right. And the mother of all coincidences, Nova shows up, and Brent goes through the same motions that Taylor does, where he's like, okay, she's mute, she can't really communicate, but he notices that she's wearing Taylor's dog tag, so clearly she's had some contact with him, and he rides with her to Ape City. And one of the problems I have with this movie is that it's a tale of two halves. We'll get to the second half when this movie really goes in a different direction. But the first half of this movie really plays like a loose remake of the original. It hits a lot of the same beats for that main character on mm-hmm. their discovery. But the problem is, A, it doesn't have the effect of the first one, and the apes are nowhere near as prominent of characters as they are in the first film. Yeah, that is a big issue. And we did mention last week that it took a while for the apes to come in. You know, it took about a half hour. And here you actually feel that, and you're kind of aching to see them earlier than they come in more so than last week because at least last week we were kind of taken in by the story i'm not taken in by this guy's acting i'm not taken in by this crash landing i'm not taken in by anything that we're seeing so the lack of presence is very felt yeah i'm looking forward to just 
come on, get there, get me there. You know, I'm, I'm kind of a hurry up and let's get this thing going. But yeah, to your point, even the reintroduction of Brenton and Nova, like, could it be any more just copy and pasting of what we got last week? It's, yeah. it's, it's amazing how much of this follows, it, not even follows, just copies that original film until it doesn't. Yeah, we're going through those same beats, exactly. We're rehashing a lot of that last film. Okay, if you're going to do this sequel and you're going to work so hard to do a different sequel, spoiler alert, it, it doesn't last the entire film. But here, I'm just like, okay, let's get on with it yeah. here. Well, the first half of this movie is basically what you deride a lot of bad sequels for, just rehash, mm-hmm. just rehashing the original. Yeah. And then the second half is for the people who complain about, this is too different. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Both camps. Yeah, and here you didn't have camps to piss off. You know, here you're riding the wave of a very unexpected, successful film. And so you're doing another film, and here we're not like, okay, we're seeing the same thing, you know, in this sequel. We've seen this a hundred times in sequels. Well, at this point, we didn't see it a hundred times in sequels, you know. So I get what they're going with here, and I, I will say it again. I think it has a lot to do with the fact that people didn't have VCRs. People didn't have Blu-ray players. People didn't have DVRs. Yeah. People couldn't go back and watch that other film. So I get what they're going for here, but as some Somebody who is kind of expecting this to go in a different direction, I'm I'll be I'll say it, I'm kinda of bored here. You're exactly right. You gotta you gotta remember that movies were not replayed on TV, you did not home have home video, so that always affected and infected what came afterwards. You also didn't have sequels. It wasn't a normal thing. But this just to me is to me this is some drugged out studio heads just wanting more, more, more and not realizing or understanding how they were going to get it. Yeah, eight years later, George A. Romero would make a sequel to Night of the Living Dead that is looked at by a lot of people as being even better than that original film. Maybe one day we'll do that series and we can answer that question for ourselves. But this isn't feeling that way. We're not going in the direction of a successful 1968 film. We're going in the direction of something that is just rehashing that film. And it doesn't feel like a movie that needs to be made at this point. It feels like a sequel. Taylor stumbles upon, what a surprise, a a society of apes, but we're actually seeing, unlike the first one where, yeah, there's remnants of the class society, here it's on full display where you have the gorillas as the militaristic group, you have the orangutans who are the the ministers of of science and all that stuff, and then you have the chimps who are the the scientists and the least uh, represented as far as like total populace. We have General Ursus, who's trying to lead a rally for the apes. That sounds very similar to race relations at the time, where the only good human is a dead human, which is also kind of a famous line for this this series. He's saying that, you know, we found evidence of another civilization in the Forbidden Zone, which could be used to further not only cause a potential war and conflict, but that could be a potential food source for our society. So we need to go in and invade. And Dr. Zayas is there, but he's not really the villain of this movie like he is in the first one. Yeah, and you know, I'll I'll go ahead and say, once the apes are reintroduced, I'm back in. I I didn't really mention this last week. You know, we paid a lot of attention to the makeup, which we should, and we're going to talk about it again this week. But I am taking in by the fact that these are different classes of apes. You know, like you mentioned, Matt, we have orangutans who are scientists and chimpanzees and gorillas. Like all of them have a different function. And I really like the way that's kind of thought out that this is a different class of apes living on this planet and are integrating in their own way. And here we have these humans once again trying to stumble upon their, uh, their land. 
this part has me a little excited because I think we're going to get more of the military versus religious side. Yes. So I think we're going to delve more into that. And with Ursus really coming into prominence, I'm like, okay. You know, other than the fact that everybody in the background looks really, really bad, I'm excited about the prospect of what this is going to bring up here. Because we had the military part in the last film, but nowhere near as much as it was just a race and religious discussion. So I think this point, and you got to realize we're in the absolute thick of Vietnam, and I'm like, okay, we're really going to get some of this brought to the forefront here. And it, mm-hmm. I'm excited to see it. We also are reintroduced to Cornelius and Zero, who were going to be tried for heresy, but that seems like they kind of got a slap on the wrist or that's already been taken care of. But they're definitely still feeling ostracized and against this whole idea of colonizing the, the Forbidden Zone, because now they're aware that there is another, you know, there is a human society out there, thanks to the last movie. And you mentioned that Roddy McDowell's not back. I felt it right away. I don't know about you guys, but even though I hadn't seen this movie, I didn't have to wait for the credits to realize that this was not uh, Roddy McDowell. And his presence is really, his lack of presence, much like Rod Serling's is felt. Then I didn't miss as much because that character's not in this enough. I could tell something is off and a little different. But even to me, the way that the mouths move and everything just doesn't seem, doesn't seem to work nearly as much as in this one. We praised the hell out of the ape effects when we talked about Planet of the Apes. But man, Beneath isn't just in the title. The quality of these effects is beneath the dignity of that first film. I didn't notice too big of a step down. I didn't notice as big of a step down as you mentioned, Adam, but I did notice a step down. You, we talked last week, even last week, much as we praised that makeup, when you see the background characters, you can kind of notice that they look different than the rest. Here, we really notice it. And again, that slash on budget, you know, if you're trying to one-up that sequel and you're trying to go on the cheap to make a better movie, you better have the writing down. They don't have the writing down, and they sure as hell don't have the great makeup effects back i mean it's good they're good effects don't get me wrong especially you know for the time that they're in but they're not great like last week's were they're treating this like a tv production they want more and they want to do it with a lower budget and that's what tv does as you go further along in seasons we're not going to give you a bigger budget because you made us money we're going to give you a smaller budget because we think the profits are going to be better and it never works that way one pass I'll give the makeup effects is the reduced budget, but also there's a lot more crowd shots where you can visibly see the actors in makeup. So it's just more more people are going to stand out just based on how many mm-hmm. are, are in view of the camera. Uh, but all of them have better emoting than James Franciscus when he's running away. <laughs> and he, he, gets ca- he gets captured, but... Cornelius and Zero take him in to administer aid after he gets shot in the arm. They're asking, you know, where's Taylor... Of course, Nova can't answer, so they honestly don't know. But they're not as apprehensive to Brent because they're like, oh, another human. They realize that he is indeed sort of telling the truth about coming from uh, on a rescue mission. But enjoy your time with Cornelius and Zira because after the first half of this movie, they're gone. They're gone, yeah. I am so glad they didn't have Brent try to rehash the damn dirty apes line. Like, I'm so glad they didn't do something like that with this bland actor man that would have come off as bad <laughs> so they, they tell him to go off and try to find him as best they can Zayas comes in and says that i'm going with general ursus enter the forbidden zone and uh, apparently domestic abuse still exists in the ape society because cornelius covers that he hit her i'm gonna say this <laughs> this is the most hardcore g-rated movie maybe in the history of releases by a major studio <laughs> it's 
pretty hardcore. Yeah, I, I noticed that it was rated G when I turned this on the Stars app when I watched it. So I wasn't expecting something like this. This is pretty hardcore. Star Wars had a PG rating, and that was because of two dead bodies that Luke finds when he's going to find his uncle and aunt in Tatooine. Here, like, this is even worse than that, and it got a G rating. I will never understand the rating system as long as I live. No matter how far back this system goes, I will never understand what warrants a PG, what warrants a G, especially in the 60s and 70s. They had no fucking clue. It's the great mystery in and of itself. Like, I don't understand how you quantify. And this is a whole conversation we could have. I, I like I like the idea of a binary rating system. A, lo- a movie should either be family-friendly or it's not. I hate all this middle ground and having to justify, well, you can show this, but you can't show that. And it's just a yeah. whole... It's more complicated than this ape society. Well, you know what it reminds me of? There was a time, and I, and I think I do think they still do it, although probably not as blatant as they used to. But, you know, you take a horror film, you plaster a PG-13 rating on it, and you will get more of those teenagers who come in to see it, even though there's nothing illegal about going into an R-rated movie as a teenager. But you still get the general admission. Here, they're using the general admission rating to get that box office. They were doing it even then, guys. Yeah, well, there was also the argument of, well, what you were seeing on television was more violent and graphic than anything you you could see in a movie at this time, Mm -hmm. at least for general audiences. I mean, you had movies that were really pushing the boundary around this time, like The Wild Bunch, when it came to blood and, you know, bullet penetration and things like that. But, you know, certainly for a G movie, some of the stuff you see in this is shocking in, in hindsight. But what's not shocking is that to the surprise of no one, even though he is decked out, he loses his astronaut clothing. Brent is captured again, and they're told that they're going to be used as target practice because now we have like this little training montage. Speaking of Rocky, where they're knocking captive, they're knocking captive humans <laughs> off horses. They're using nets. I love the montage in this. I loved it. <laughs> This is basically the, the Spectre base from Provost of a Love, where they're doing all the different exercises and demonstrations. <laughs> and this is when I get some of that, okay, we're going to have some type of military force, real societal talk here going on, because we're seeing, you know what, I trained with bayonets on my rifle, and it's not too far from what basic combat training is, and damn, these dirty apes have got it down pat. For all of five minutes, because, yeah, you see the the military, but at the end of the day, they resort to guns once you get to the last part of this movie. Well, and it's, they're there, but they're only there to be there. Like, they don't... Yeah. It, it's a force, but it's a... It, there's not a big fight between, like, Ursus and Zaius. There kind of is, but you should have a big split in the society about which way we're going to go. To me, that's the... That is lost here compared to the last film. Like, there's just that real meaning shot that should make you stop and think is in here. Yeah, and you know what? And at this point, I'm I'm going in this movie, and I'm thinking it has something to say. And it's, at this point, it still doesn't. Now, it does eventually, and boy, will we talk about that. But you're right, Adam. It's going through the motions here without any of that real irony that came with that last film. And I thought they were trying to one-up that. You know, you're going to replace a budget with a better script, but this script is not better. And I'll say it again. Rod Serling's fucking ironic writing is definitely missing here. We're not getting any of that irony that he brought to that last film. None of it. Especially around this time, if you know 1970 at all, you'd think they're making reference to Cambodia with the whole, yeah. whole Khmer Rouge yeah. uprising that was happening around this time. But yeah, you're right. There's no... First one has a lot to say, as we talked about. This one has a message, but it doesn't come in until the second half of the movie. Uh, there's really nothing here in the first half. 
as far as showing like the schisms and the ape society or really why they even have a military complex in the first place since there's no other with the exception of Zaius, you know, everyone's kept in the dark about other dangers. So why do they have such a big police force? Zira helps them escape by saying she'll double lock the door, but we get a scene where Brent is on top of the wagon, knocks off another gorilla, and they manage to escape into this uh, cave where they're being followed by a small patrol. Turns out they are now in the remnants of the Queensboro Plaza section of the New York subway. And my God. Yeah. Before you get there, can I mention that I did like the action scene to get us here? You know, I've been kind of harsh on this movie because I was so surprised by how much I liked last week's movie in here. I was kind of thinking that, okay, this is what I kind of expected the series to be. But this action scene getting here, him on the wagon and everything, I liked that a lot. I like the way it's filmed. And uh, Ted Post, you know, later on when he does Dirty Harry, he's good at the action scenes in that as well this is well filmed and this is a pretty good action scene even if it has a bland actor at the head i like part of it but it cuts between some decent actual filming and then it'll cut to some really bad rear projection work and then there's the fall that you get into the the obvious mattress pad (laughs) (laughs) yes leaves on top like it i mean it's almost quaint you know and cute in the way that it's done because you're like oh 60s filming but it's it it's okay to me. It, it goes on a little long, and that's amazing to say for such a short film. It does go on long, but it is the adrenaline rush I was kind of looking for when I popped this movie in. You know the yeah, we do need that because we didn't really get a lot of action in Ape City. Yeah, you know, we got that yeah. little military montage, but there wasn't there hasn't been a lot of action going on, and we're nearing a halfway point of this thing. Yeah, there's no the, the chase sequence that's here. It's kind of a it's a cut down version of the first one in a lot of ways. Yeah. And my God, talk about being a remake. This is supposed to be where he realizes that they're in the subway. It's supposed to be his damn you all to hell moment, except this guy cannot convey shock or terror in any capacity. And I hate movies where because the other person they're with is a mute, they have to self-monologue. It drives me crazy, this movie, because this guy sucks. Those eight kids, that thing that he wipes away that has little, like, dials and things on it, that's a payphone. <laughs> and ask your, ask your mom. She knows. This would be like putting, like, Jai Courtney in the lead of a movie now. You know, it's just like this guy cannot convey anything. They didn't get Heston on the cheap, I don't think, right? I mean, he was a well-respected actor last week. Like, why did they go so far in the cheap to get somebody who can't even convey this shit? And we'll talk about the ending. I have things to say about it, but he's already telling us that he can't sell it, you know, to use a wrestling term. He just can't. They managed to make their way further into the remnants where they find this distinctive humming sound that keeps guiding them through the the remnants. They come across a water fountain, and with the flick of a switch, he proceeds to attempt to drown Nova in the fountain. Yeah, what was this about? Are they trying to control him? Yeah, Yeah. this was creepy out of nowhere. Uh, This at least has some intrigue that I got no idea what's going on. You know, I could tell, you know, there's some type of mind control because that high-pitch 60s, 70s screening Mm -hmm. sound is going on. I'm intrigued until, as you said, he can't sell it, but this also feels kind of domestic abusey, which then feels really creepy kind of quick. But I'm at least fascinated because we've taken a turn. Yeah. From mm-hmm. here on out, this is the line of demarcation where it becomes a very different movie. Yeah. Because it's unexpected. Like, there's no, outside of the humming, there's no preamble to say this guy's mentally ill or maybe he's not who he claims to be. Like, he's a, for all we know, he could be a robot or an android. <laughs> like, that, like, like that has malfunctioning. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would have been the way to do it. Yeah, exactly. Would have been alien. He would have been Ash. Yeah. 
So he regains consciousness somehow, backs away into another room, and he enters St. Patrick's Cathedral, or at least what's left of it, and he finds someone worshipping what looks to be a very phallic object. You know, it's basically the Austin Powers rocket. (laughs) But he turns around, and he's shocked to see another human, although seemingly also mute because he's not speaking, at least verbally. I gotta tell you, this is when I was like, what the fuck? Am I watching? <laughs> I was taken aback by this. I do not remember any other humans in these movies. Again, I saw them. I, I saw bits and pieces. So it's not like I sat down and watched them with my father. But my father would watch them quite a bit when I was a kid. I, I don't remember any of these. And once these guys showed up, these mutants, I was like, wow, where the hell are we going? And again, Goudreau, you did not warn me at all that this is where this movie or this series, really, it it just takes a different turn than what I was expecting, you know. I thought this would be not a run-of-the-mill sequel, but something that's more of the same, but something different. This has a bad rehash and something completely different, and I'm not sure if I like that better than the former. (laughs) It's a jump. Because you have these guys, you have these guys worshipping a bomb, and I I see what they're saying with this. I mean, at, at this point, you know, they were developing the atom bomb. I mean, we reviewed Oppenheimer last year. That was going on at this time, and so I, I get what he's saying with this. But it's, I don't know if it comes across as good as last week's message was. Well, I don't think it does, but I think it still works, because I like this approach of, you know, humans being caught in the cycle where they're worshipping the thing that destroyed the previous generation, and also using the atomic bomb as an allegory for religion makes sense because religion has killed throughout the history of mankind as many people as the atomic bomb, and you can argue yeah. ten times over. So I do think there's a, there is a statement being made. It's no, it, I mean, look, none of these movies are subtle. Mm-hmm. This, I don't think this is as focused, because it's only the second half of the movie that this is a focal point. You know, this doesn't carry through like you could argue the first one does. But I still, I like what it's saying, but I kind of wish this was the whole movie. Like, if there was a way to, you could have got yeah. to this sooner. Yeah, it's almost like they felt, oh shit, like last week we shocked them so much with what we had to say. Let's go in that direction. I mean, hell, they even bring the nuclear fucking holocaust into this as well. I mean, they are really going deep here. And it's just, you're right, it's not subtle. And I, honestly, I, I don't mind if it's not subtle. Like, I, I don't mind if it hits me over the head. But hit me with something that, that has some of the same irony that I felt while I was watching last week's film. And I don't, I'm not feeling that here. I love this idea. And the reason is, we blew ourselves up. You know, damn you, you did it. We blew ourselves to hell. We destroyed this planet. And this group of humans, we think, are worshipping the bomb. There is something I idea-wise, that is great there. The problem is that positiveness that I'm having ends at the idea stage because, you know what, you needed another, you needed Rod Serling or somebody of that ilk to flesh out this version of the story. It is a really, really good idea, but you also didn't lead into the fact that this planet exists in its current state because of the bomb and these people are worshiping what got us here and we're in a massive war we're only less than two decades removed from world war ii we're in vietnam all that should matter to these people that are just praising this thing that brent should also hate and be fearful of but he doesn't know that that's why this planet is in the state so there's a Mm -hmm. there's a disconnect 
You know, if we saw Taylor just struggling with people who were raising this thing that he was fearful of and came to be right about, damn, that would work out so much better. So the idea is on the page and just no. You're absolutely right. Again, the hand of Ross Serling is definitely missing here. And yes, Ted Post did work on the Twilight Zone. He he might have approved these and thought he could do something with this. But without Rod Serling molding this into what last week's film was, you have something that feels empty. And you have a topic being brought up that's not closed correctly. And this film is not closed correctly. This is also, you got a studio who just made a a ton of money. I mean, they just made just an eat shit load of it and not not just the movie but this is when you suddenly had toys and stuff coming out too and yeah you had planet of the apes figures and play sets that people went crazy for so as a studio yeah you know what this may be not be good we don't care because people are going to go see it anyway so yeah they they weren't going to make sure it was polished they were just going to get it in the theater I wouldn't say it's out of nowhere. It just goes really unfocused because rather than going with the message, the movie becomes too enveloped in the tel- in the telepathy bullshit. Yeah, yeah. There's there's a lot of use of the yeah, force. They're, they're just showing off like <laughs> look, at what, look at what the mutants can do versus what they versus yep. what they believe. And I think mm-hmm. this would have a connection. No, and it would have worked better if this was Taylor exclusively. Like cut out bread completely, and yeah. you you. You intercut when you show the apes. It's just the fallout of the previous movie where Zira and Cornelius are on trial. General Ursus, you know, mandate to go into the Forbidden Zone still happens, and it can happen independent of Brett. Like they're and having Taylor discover this new society in contrast to what he's already seen in the previous movie adds even more of a substantial impact to the ending than what's already here. If Nova goes back after Taylor disappears, and got Cornelius and Zira who recognize Nova and you have something where they're going to try to find Taylor and Nova either starts to learn to speak or starts to communicate with pictures, drawings. You can have a bridge to to the parts of the first film that, that mattered quite a bit because Zira and Cornelius, they would absolutely abandon that society to go look for Taylor. I mean, well, speaking of abandonment, they cut to the apes preparing to leave their society before they run into a group of hippie protesters. Yes. This is literally make love, not war. Yep. Yeah, I thought of that. And it happens once and it's never addressed again. Yep. It's, it's really, it's really weird how like there's social commentary and real life allegories that are just peppered in, but it's not really a through line like it is in the first movie. That's the issue with it. Yeah. So the mutants capture Brent officially and they interrogate him. In a room that looks like the fucking Kryptonian Council from Superman. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. And I thought it was. I had to look up that supposedly everybody assumed it was, and for a long time that was the rumor that it was reused, and they've had to come out and say, no, 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 it's not the set. It was in a different continent even. I don't know. If, <laughs> if it's not the exact same set, I know where Richard Donner got some ideas. Well, they were replicated right. sets from Hello, Dolly. It's really weird. I mean, they have the freaking crystals that are right out of the Fortress of Solitude. Like, it's yes, it's, eerily, it's eerily similar. Quote a movie we're going to talk about next. Coincidence? I think not! <laughs> so, Brent believes that, you know, I like this parallel where we're led to believe that these humans also don't speak. But it turns out that they are, they're just lazy. They're telepaths. So they 
they, <laughs> like they're, they don't want to be burdened by the thought of committing effort to verbal speaking, but they, you know, quote unquote, interrogate him by making him hurt, and they talk about how they're a they're the descendants of a, a nuclear holocaust where they they claim to be a peaceful society, but yet, but it's like the hypocrisy and hubris of humans to begin with. You know, they use violence through indirect means to get what they want, and they force Brent to confess that the apes are marching on their forbidden zone. This feels right out of Star Trek. We we don't attack directly. We create proxy wars, and we fight in other countries instead of our (laughs) Yeah, no shit. Yep, I have Star Trek in my notes as well. Because they say, you know, we use illusions. It's like Vietnam. Mm-hmm. As that we're creating proxy wars, and you can even say there's some undercurrents of implanting communist propaganda into some of our media mm-hmm. at, at this time, or you know, pro. I mean, look, Watergate's a few years away, so paranoia was at an all-time high around this period. We're also seven years removed from the assassination of JFK, too. So conspiracies were a very popular topic around that time. You know, are my thoughts my own? Are they being implanted? As you said, the subliminal implanting of messages was. We were being told that was a thing that was happening. So, yeah. It's mentioned that they use illusions as their sole means of defense, which is further displayed. And I'm going to preface this again by saying this is a G-rated movie. Cut to the apes (laughs) that see a field of reverse crucified apes and a statue of their lawgiver that is bleeding like the Virgin Mary statue from South Park. Yeah. I didn't expect you to end it with that, but again, took me aback. We're in a PG movie, and something else that's going to happen here in a few minutes as well was this like, whoa! This stuff would have scarred me if I was seeing this as a kid. But again, this is the, you know, the criticism of this movie is purely from a a religious standpoint. So at least there is a through line, but again, I reiterate, it's only the first, the second half of the movie. And specifically, it's Catholicism, because when we cut back to the, the ceremony or the, the sermon, where they're worshiping the bomb, you know, they're saying amen. They talk about God almost in a Catholic type of sense. And the ritual, they take off the mask, talk about scarring children, where they're all bald, they're scarred, they got like varicose vein disease. Let me tell you something. When I was seven years old, I saw a movie called The Last Starfighter. And there's a scene in that movie where somebody who is supposed to be an android is in this bed, the Covers are revealed, and it is like the scariest fucking puppet. I hope to review this movie eventually, because, man, this is another thing that, as a kid, just scarred the hell out of me. This seemed like about 40 of those, <laughs> like, right here in this ritual. Fuck, I was not expecting the skin to fall off. I was not expecting these things. Every time they cut to him, I was like, oh, my God, like, again, G-rated. This is crazy, guys. I was not expecting it, but when he started pulling his mask, his face off, I was expecting something better than what we got when those came off. I thought we were going to get the lizard people that we see in, in like, the TV series V. Just, just something like this. I, I don't know. It doesn't seem, like, most of this movie, it doesn't seem fully finished. Like, I, yeah, I, I, well, I don't know the reason. I don't know the why. Are these aliens that landed here? Are these us? You know, because I don't think we should be trusting anything that's going on. Uh, what's the reason for this deformity? It, it's just... Okay, they're pale with some varicose veins. You know, they look like they look like a tit that's grown a little too big. They got blue veins all over it. it, it I I don't know. There's not enough to make them look really, really mutant for me. You know what I thought of as as we're seeing all this, you know, vascular disease and stuff on these guys. I thought of the nuclear holocaust. I thought that's kind of what they were playing off of is survivors of the nuclear holocaust, but. 
Yeah, you're right. It's not clearly defined, but I don't think it needs to be. I don't know. Matt, what do you feel about this? Do you think this needed to be defined and what exactly is going on with these things? I get enough from the insinuation. I don't feel like I needed a full explanation, but I get what you're saying that it's not really explained. A lot of it does feel unfocused. I think that's the big word that I use to, to summarize this movie. So I, I understand that line of thinking. Brent gets separated from Nova, and to the surprise of a lot of people, we actually see that Taylor is indeed alive and well. Hi, guys. <laughs> I'm here. <laughs> I'm here for my two days of work. Yeah, they had to drag him out of his trailer. And right away, I'm like, yeah, he's acting circles around this other guy. <laughs> I was just thinking the same exact thing. I'm like, fuck, man, why couldn't you come back for this entire film? This would be so much better if we had Charlton Heston going through this again. And yeah, we had issues with his acting last week. But man, the charisma always made up for the lack of uh, subtlety in his performance. For all the good and all the bad. And he had a lot of both. He commanded the screen, you know. Yep. And, and this other guy just can't. Speaking of Star Trek, they might as well have played the arena music because the mutant makes them fight each other. <laughs> this was crazy. <laughs> but they managed to break through long enough because Nova interferes, screams Taylor, which is our first word. The mutant kind of breaks his, his gap. And then they proceed to impale him on the prison wall. And, and then shut it to, like, push it in further for good measure. That's yeah, like that the, the Iron Maiden principle of, yeah, he's already stuck <laughs> at both sides. Then in an almost slapsticky kind of move, the door shuts. Yes. <laughs> Coincidentally, this is happening at the exact same time that the apes have broken through into the Forbidden Zone. They come in, guns a-blazing. So they're proving that they're no better or no more civilized than the humans that they claim to detest so much. I wish the stormtroopers would have taken target lessons from these guys. These guys can aim. Yeah, I was going to say, these guys actually, I mean, this movie's got a pretty high, literally, this movie has one it does. of the biggest body counts you'll ever see in a movie, given, mm -hmm. given the consequence of the ending. But Taylor mentions that the, the bomb is the Alpha and the Omega. It's literally a doomsday bomb. It's literally the Omega Man letting us know. Yeah. Although there is no last man on Earth at the end of this movie. <laughs> so the apes invade, you know, they make their way to the cathedral, all the mutants are getting shot. Uh, Nova is killed in the crossfire, Aww. which is the fifth least shocking thing in this last ten minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I thought the other two might not make it. I wasn't expecting to see Nova killed. Oh, uh, uh, well, no one making it. This movie is basically, uh, must be Lars von Trier's favorite movie. <laughs> it's a nihilist dream. It's yeah. basically melancholia 40 plus years before that movie actually came out. The telepath leader gets shot dead by Ursus. He orders them to, you know, tie up the bomb and presumably take it with them. Zaius is arguing against it, saying, you know, like, this this, this is not going to go well, is basically what he's saying. Mm -hmm. Echoing the first movie. Taylor and Brent reveal themselves. We get a massive shootout where, again, a G-rated movie, Brent is shot in the head and bleeds out. <laughs> shot in the head. Like yep. it is amazing that how much blood is being splattered around with these gunshots for a yeah. G-rated film. I, uh, mm -hmm. Until you said it was G, I never would have crossed my mind. I mean, this this conclusion feels like Sam Peckinpah speaking of Wild Bunch fucking directed it. <laughs> like, I was like, are we sure Paul you know, Hoven did not ghost direct this part? Because <laughs> <laughs> he loves sci-fi too. Like this is oh yeah. So not only does Brent get shot, Taylor gets shot in the chest. And he falls off. More blood. Falls off the top of the uh, of the scaffold that he's in. He's telling Zaius, you know, this is bad, and Zaius refuses to listen. Says, you know, this is human humanity is 
proving that once again, despite evolution, they've learned nothing. But he's oblivious to the fact that the apes have done the exact same thing that he has derided humanity for doing. That moment right there, like it took us the entire film to get there, but I liked it. it there's a moment of realizing that primitive nature, the primates are primates, that, you know, the apes are humans, the humans are apes. We do act that way to each other. We're descended from each other. Yeah. We are each other's, you know, uh, missing link, if you will. You know, it's it's so glossed over. But when you want to see that we are the exact same and we act the same in the end, it's just, the, fuck, I wish it was told better. And things escalate about as bad as you can get, because in his dying moment, a la Star Trek Wrath of Khan, I spit my last breath at thee, to quote Shakespeare. He presses the red crystal down, which detonates the bomb, and the entire planet is destroyed. <laughs> Unbelievable. Benji, now, son, Matt. To Earth's yellow sun. Oh, wait, no. <laughs> Please bring up the Domino's pizza order before you press the button. I thought last week's movie was fucking nihilistic. This movie literally ends with this guy detonating this bomb and blowing up this entire fucking planet. Matt, are they just going to keep trying to out-fucking-doom every single fucking ending? I mean, this ending goes worse than last week's. And maybe that was just, maybe that was the point of it. Maybe that's exactly what they were going for. But I don't know how you get any more nihilistic than this. You know, we even get a fucking final title card that explains everything that you know that just happened. It's just like... Jesus Christ, man, like, was not expecting this at all, I have to say, boys. I was expecting Charlton Heston to die because I had heard that, yeah, he came back just to be killed. But this whole ending is fucking bonkers. And me and Matt, we text each other right after I finished watching it and he had finished watching it. I'm like, I cannot believe how fucking dark this series gets. And we're only in the second goddamn film. So to answer your question... None of the movies top of this ending as far as okay. nihilism. I mean, you can't top destroying the entire planet. No, that's why I um, asked. But these movies don't resolve themselves in the easiest of ways. And, and they're far from okay. conventional happy endings. I don't know if there's a single happy ending in this entire franchise of ten fucking movies we're going to talk about. <laughs> but yeah, it's you, you have the ultimate F.U. to humanity where we blew ourselves up again. And we, and we proved that we learned nothing. You have a narrator come in and say, in one of the countless billions of galaxies in the universe lies a medium-sized star. One of its satellites, a green and significant, insignificant planet, is now dead. <laughs> is now dead. Like, done. There's there's people go home with a smile on your face. Here's your here's your ending to the movie you've been waiting for for you two years. You may feel the Twilight Zone. <laughs> exactly. And this voiceover is done by Paul Fries, who is up there with Mel Blanc as one of the great voiceover artists of all time. Like, this is the guy who, oh. uh, he did a lot of the Rankin Bass yeah. Christmas specials. He did the Ralph Bakshi Lord of the, Lord of the Rings. Uh, he was Boris and Rocky and Bullwinkle. So, very, very prominent, but this, this is the most, I will say this is one of the ballsiest endings in the history of cinema. Yep. Absolutely. I, I have that written down as well. I just hope this means we don't see Brent again. Well, rest assured, rest assured you will not. I'm glad I did not know that this is how it ended. You know, I knew the ending Same. of the first one. It, it still mattered, though. Unfortunately, like I was reading IMDb and I was clicking on the trivia, and you would think that the spoiler section would be kept in spoilers, but 
you know, to to read like the second trivia point saying Charlton Heston only agreed to come back if they killed him off. I was like, well, god damn it. <laughs> you know, that might have, you know, meant something more, but I still think it's a, it's amazing that he does more in his like 7 minutes of screen time than anybody else does in this film. It's amazing that they had the nerve to go that way. But I also don't think that the studio gave a crap about anything. They just wanted a movie out cuz I find it hard to believe they would have been like, sure, yeah, go with that. Let's end the franchise that made us a fuck ton of money on film two. Adam, this is why you read the trivia after you watch the movie. No, that's why you don't click on the spoiler <laughs> section when you <laughs> You know, the funny thing is that you talk about, as we alluded to in the last week's show, it's one of the most famous endings in movie history, Planet of the Apes. This one... Mm-hmm. Unless you know the series, it's not talked about in the same breath when you can argue it's even more ballsy than that. You know, I thought of that, Matt. Like, I thought of, like, how fucking famous is last week's ending? Like, we we talked about it last week. Everybody knows it. It's been parodied. How do you parody this? You know, I think that's why, because it's not in our grand culture. Like, our culture has not parodied this over the years. You know, it's not in our vernacular. But you're absolutely right. This is darker than last week's. Somehow, someway, they found a way to do it. But yet, coming in, I had no idea about it. Adam didn't have any idea about it. It's not in the vernacular as much as last week's ending is. To me, it's not just that it happens. It's not just that the bomb goes off and destroys everything. It's that Taylor pushes the button. Yeah. For the person to have the reaction and to be worried about, you know, us blowing ourselves up for the first film. Like, that was his big, you know, that's what he worried about. He destroys this world. And, yeah, there's just, it's a very thoughtful moment, you know, on page. Mm-hmm. Well, it's also telling that the ultimate misanthrope is the one that pushes the button, which I think mm-hmm. is the important part. But there's no post credit scene. There's no tie-in <laughs> to the next movie. Yes, there is another movie after this, people. In fact, there's several. <laughs> but that does it. Yeah, but that does it for Beneath the Planet of the Apes. Lively discussion. I'm glad you guys watched this movie for the first time as cold as possible. So, Adam, on a scale of 1 to 10, what do you give the second installment? I couldn't believe how excited I was to go into this movie after the huge surprise that that original film was. I thought that original film was thoughtful, had something to say. And even the cheesy, corny moments and and obviously 60s effects and, and prosthetics had a real charm to it. None of that exists in this film. Everything that was enjoyable about that first one has been stripped away from its actor to the dialogue to the, the meanings behind so many things in the script. And this is just, to me, this is what I always thought of when it came to Planet of the Apes. It was a parody. It was something to be made fun of, roll your eyes at, and that just was a farce in the realm of science fiction. Because this film is a farce of the first one. It's almost an insult that it fails to deliver on every level of what that first one did. It's a shame. It's it's a damn shame. Because I think we put more thought and discussed some of the moments that really could have shined, that could have had that socio-political thought process going through this film but it it doesn't want to do it it wants to get in put some really bad effects on screen it, i mean this this can't even be bothered like batman to put eye black under the on the eyes of the white actors wearing black ape masks 
I mean, they look like a raccoon <laughs> having white on black fucking every time apes are going through. And that may seem like a minor thing, but it just shows that the people involved on this film were not interested in the quality control at all. This is such a giant step down that that feels more insulting to me than anything else. You could skip this one other than the ending. There's a lot of that end that is just like, wow, that's a revelation. But it's done piss poor. And that's the shame. I was going to go up a level because of how I feel. You know what? I will. I'll be a little nice because I appreciate the ending. And I don't know how you get out of this ending. I don't know. I don't know if I want to know based on this one. But I don't know how you undo this. I got a, I got a theory and I'm scared. Um, I'm going to give this a four. And I think that's being extremely generous to do so. I think you kind of got to see it as a companion piece to the first one, but be prepared that it is not last week's film. Our first GC on 10 for this franchise. Let's see if your co-astronaut feels the same way. Garrett, how do you feel about Beneath the Planet of the Apes? (laughs) In a lot of ways, this turned out the exact way I thought it would when three essential things were missing or almost missing from last week's film. One, Rod Serling. I think his writing is sorely missing here. To a lesser extent, Charlton Heston, yes, he comes in the beginning, he comes in the end, but you know what? His presence is needed throughout this film because this guy they got is just, we've said it enough, but goddamn. If you have the story of Rocky, which is really well written, and you put somebody who was uncharismatic in that role who could not sell it, it would turn out to be bad. This is a character in this movie, Brent, who should be somebody we root for. But just given the fact that he is trying to do his best Charlton Heston impression and failing, it's a detriment to the film. And to a lesser extent to me, not necessarily to Adam, but, you know, I miss Roddy McDowell. You know, I I love the Cornelius character from last week. And uh, yeah, we don't get as much of him here, but goddamn, the fact that Roddy McDowell wasn't here is felt, you know, because Roddy McDowell brought something to that character. I, I think we're going to see in future movies, we saw last week's movie, like he he brought a charisma that is missing. And uh, and that's one thing I will say is that, you know, this, this movie's missing a lot. However, last year when we did Dial of Destiny, Matt, you said that the ending of that movie pretty much saved it from taking a nosedive in your eyes. And I want to say the same thing about this movie because this is an ending I was not expecting. This is an ending that came out of nowhere for me. This isn't an ending where it ended, and I'm thinking, where the hell do you go from here? And I think those are the best kinds of endings. The the movie does have something to say, but not nearly as well-constructed as as last week's film. Still, I'm going to be like Adam. I am going to be nicer because of how ballsy that ending is, and then there are some of the action set pieces, rare projection screen or not, that I enjoyed. So I want to go six. I had enough of a fun time with this, and I was taken aback enough to recommend it on a small, much smaller scale than last week. But still, I mean, I, I, I didn't have a bad time watching this. I just wish there was more of last week's movie that I enjoyed in this one. So 6 out of 10 for me for Beneath the Planet of the Apes. So believe it or not, I have the same score written down as one of you. And I'll say this. If you're going into this movie expecting something of the caliber of the first film, which is such a landmark piece of not just science fiction, but, you know, American cinema, you're going to be disappointed. This is a very different type of movie for 50% of it. And the first half is the kind of sequel I rebel against. You know, it's the Ghostbusters 2 effect, where it's kind of just hitting the same beats that the first one did to a a lesser effect. But once they get into the, the the remnants of 
destroyed New York, the movie becomes very compelling for me. It's outlandish, it's unfocused, and it's about as dirty and muddled as the telephone booth that's shown to Brent in his moment of realization. But at the same time, to quote Alien and Ash, I admire its purity. Like, there is a... There's something about this movie being as ballsy as it is. And I, I keep using that word, but it is the... It's the rare sequel where it's it's not saying, okay, what... To Adam's point, yeah, it's make another movie as quick as possible. But it's the antithesis of sequel bait. Like, this leaves nothing open for you to possibly carry on this franchise. Like, it is a, it's a companion piece, but it is the alpha and the omega, these two movies, seemingly. You know, it's the, the end of worlds, in a literal sense. And I admire the ambition of that. I can't think of a lot of movies, especially sequels, that have an ending as downtrodden of a, of a note as this. But I can't lie to you and say this is a great movie because so much of the commentary is saved for the back half of the movie, and the titular apes are an afterthought, both in the makeup and the, the screen time that those characters get. So, yeah, it is a, it is a step down, but I'm not going to condemn it, because there's so much more here than I think a lot of sequels, especially now, are capable of doing. So I'm going to share Garrett's sentiment and give this a six. I don't think this is a terrible movie, but I also understand that it is nowhere near the caliber of its predecessor. That's amazing because, you know, th- this entire podcast, and I know I'm going to edit this and listen back to it and realize, God damn, all you did was rip on it. But I, I, I think in a lot of ways I admire it for where it went, you know, which is something that I was not expecting. If you pull it off the way this movie pulled it off, there's something to be said about that. There was something to be said after the stunned silence of movie theaters watching the ending of this movie. Then a year later, they released another movie. <laughs> <laughs> you say to yourself, wow, that's that the ultimate writing yourself into a corner. You're not kidding. And I didn't agree with my uh, best friend for 30 years on the score of this movie, but I'm going to agree with them on one thing. I am fucking scared as to where we go now because we are two movies in, boys. Two movies in. We have three more to go, and they've blown up the entire planet where the hell are they going here and i'm scared we're gonna get like a movie where we're gonna see a whole movie play out and a character's gonna wake up and it was a dream that took place before the world blow blew up like i'm scared of that kind of storytelling here i'm scared that there's gonna be an ape that that is on earth you know and we got to deal with that i i don't know where this franchise is going i have no fucking clue and i am i'm clenched up scared to turn on the next three films Adam said, you know what? He said he has a theory as to what what the next movie is. I I do, and I'll, I'll say. You know what? No, I'll say it because I don't know. I've never no. looked into these. I've never yeah, looked. Go into ahead. Them. Yeah, say it. Um, I think we're either going time travel, or we're escaping. The, or we're literally like there's another spaceship because there was a second spaceship in this one. There's a third spaceship, and they take off. Like I, those are my two thoughts because I don't know how else you do this. You either got to leave this planet or you time travel on the same planet. And I just, you know what? That's very seventy sci-fi. So we'll see. You know, maybe they went through. <laughs> you know the, the maybe they pre-B Star Trek to some time travel shit. 
but I, I at this point I'm I'm kind of down for some schlock. You know what? Go as crazy if you're going to go this crazy, stupid. Fuck you, just go all out. Put a pin in the word Star Trek because next week's movie has a lot of similarities to a certain entry in Star. That's two words, by the way. Huh? I'm sorry. <laughs> I said Star Trek is two words. True. Go ahead. <laughs> But yeah, uh, uh, the next next week's movie does have a lot of similarities to Star Trek, especially that original series. So I'm really excited to talk about next week's movie because you guys, once again, know nothing. And I'm not going to show my hand as to what the movie's actually about. But we have the ultimate writing challenge. How do you get out of a movie that ends with the world being destroyed without any ambiguity? And, like, this is, not a, this is not an ending where you're like, oh, maybe it happened. Yeah, right. And clear up, what exa- which movie is going is next week's movie? What's the name of it? Yeah, they don't name it 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. So th- yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> thing. Which one is that? Well, this, uh, the third one is Escape from the Planet of the Apes. Escape. Okay. Oh, boy. That lends to your theory, Adam. It does. Big time. So until next week's movie, Escape from the Planet of the Apes, and one of the countless billions of galaxies in the universe lies a medium-sized podcast. A green and significant planet is now dead. Thank you, gentlemen. Let me make a last appeal to your reason before we inflict more of this on you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Three Men in a Retrospective Podcast. Thank you. Join us next week for an entirely new review. Tell me something, McDonald. Can we make the future what we wish? And if you would be so kind, please take a moment and give us a positive review and rating on your podcast platform of choice. Aldo was right. It truly helps others find and discover our podcasts. So many questions I want to ask. And if you enjoyed this review, please head on over to percolatedmedia.net or search your podcast platform of choice to access our percolated media archives and hear our reviews of other franchises like Star Wars, Indiana Jones, Pirates of the Caribbean, the films adapted from the published works of Stephen King, Top Gun, the DC Universe featuring Batman, the Superman DC Universe, and so many more. And so, Mandemus, we must be patient and wait. The Three Men in a Retrospective Podcast is produced by Garrett, Matt, Adam, and Nathan. Do they look like just apes to you? Given the power to alter the future, have we the right to use it? The Three Men in a Retrospective Podcast is edited by Garrett. I'll abide by that fine. You see what I have to say? The Three Men and a Retrospective Podcast is voice narrated by Adam. You just imagine that he hurt you. For the moment, we should follow their example. The Three Men and a Retrospective Podcast is for review and discussion, and all clips, music, and audio cues are used as such. Thank you.
In one of the countless billions of galaxies in the universe lies a medium-sized star, and one of its satellites, a green and insignificant planet, is now dead. But as somebody who's going to the theater in the seven in nineteen seventy one, um, or was this seventy? This was seventy yep, huh, that seven. this movie came out. Yeah, seventy. For people who are going to the theater in nineteen seventy, you know, <laughs> earlier than they come in, more so than last week, because at least last week we were kind of taken in by the story. I'm not taken in by this guy's acting. I'm not taken in by this crash landing. I'm not taken in by anything that we're seeing. So the, their presence is very felt, or their lack of presence, I should say. Their lack of presence is very felt. Honestly, I, I don't mind if it's not subtle. Like, I, I don't mind if it hits me over the head. But Hit Me was something that, that has some of the same irony that I felt while I was watching last week's film, and I don't, I'm not feeling that here. Did we drop a bomb on Adam? Because he's been very quiet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like Adam, that. you're really quiet. I, like I love this idea. <laughs>